if you follow God's design for manhood and womanhood, he gets glory and, and you get the benefit. And if you strive against God's design for manhood and womanhood in your life, you not only bring social life into ruin, but you also bring great disrepute upon the Lord Jesus and upon our Father who created the world to be a reflection of his glory. Now that becomes very clear when we tackle the subject of marriage as a subtopic of manhood and womanhood and God. Mary Stuart Van Leeuwen is one of the most articulate and compelling Christian feminists of our day. And in her, I think, most recent book, After Eden, she says this, Jesus insisted on monogamy and assigned the same rights and responsibilities to both husbands and wives, close quote. I think that's a profoundly wrong statement, a very misleading statement on two counts. One, it implies without any qualification that Jesus addressed that issue of what similar or different responsibilities a husband and a wife might have toward each other, and secondly, that he denied that the husband is called to bear certain responsibilities that the wife is not called to bear. Both of those are wrong in my judgment. I don't think Jesus addressed the issue, number one, and number two, not addressing it, he did not therefore deny what Paul taught so clearly, namely that there is a distinction in responsibility between a husband and a wife. And yet that is the kind of teaching that is promulgated far and wide, even in evangelical circles across America. And I want to commend to you another way of enjoying the relationship that God has designed for marriage, namely that he has in fact appointed certain responsibilities for the husband that he has not appointed for the wife and vice versa. And I want you to open your Bibles again if you brought them to Ephesians chapter 5. This is not the only text that we'll look at. It's the most important one, however. Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll read verses 21 to 33, and we will later look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. This is a rather long text, but I think it's worthy of reading in its entirety. So we'll start at verse 21 of Ephesians 5 and read down to the end of the chapter. Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And I will come back to that one another dimension, lest in the next 20 minutes or so you wonder if I've forgotten it. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should, she should be holy and, 
and blameless. He's describing Christ's love affair with the church here and how he's setting up the church for a great wedding someday and fitting her perfectly to celebrate that day in white. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church because we are members of his body. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you also love his own wife, even as himself. And let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Now, the place I'd like to jump into this text is at verse 31. It's a quote from Genesis 2.24. It says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then the next verse describes that as a mystery. This mystery is great, or this is a great mystery. This mystery is a profound one. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Genesis 2.24, he says, is a mystery referring to Christ and the church. Now, why does he call a man leaving father and mother, cleaving to his wife, forming a new family unit in one flesh, why does he call that a mystery? I don't know how far along you are in your own biblical studies, but if you're far enough along, you've probably been told the fact that in the New Testament, mystery does not mean something so confusing or perplexing that you can't understand it. Rather, mystery is something that has been concealed for a season, an age, a time, and now is being revealed. Do your own word study and you'll see that that's typically the way Paul uses it. And so I, I think that the meaning of mystery here is that in Genesis 2.24, it was largely concealed. I mean, the, the average reader would not have jumped to the conclusion when they read Genesis 2.24, oh, it's about Christ. It's not manifestly about Christ. Later revelation, looking back, Paul says, when God contemplated how to design man and woman and this amazing institution called marriage, when he, when he contemplated that, he had reference to another reality prior to and greater than that reality, namely the reality of his son and his son's relationship to a coming redeemed people. And he looked at that prototype in his own mind and he designed marriage after that type. And that was only partially revealed in the Old Testament. It was partially revealed because God and Israel are described as husband and wife in the Old Testament. So those who had ears to hear and eyes to see could see what was coming as more and more revelation happened about the meaning of marriage. What is it all about? So I would argue on the basis of these two verses that marriage is at its heart 
a God-designed metaphor or image or picture or parable about the relationship between Christ and the church. I think that's the deepest meaning of marriage. It's meant to be a setting forth in the world of what Christ is like in his relationship to his people and what the church is to be like in her relationship to Christ. Marriage is meant by God to be a setting forth, a, a metaphor, a parable, a drama of something in heaven and in God's relationship or Christ's relationship to his people on earth. Which, by the way, this is not a message about divorce. That is the reason that God hates divorce. Divorce is a lie about Christ and the church. That's why God hates divorce. It's not that it ruins children's lives, as it often does, and breaks the hearts of those involved. It's that it is a falsehood portrayed to the world about Christ and the church. Christ will never divorce his people. He never has, and he never will. And marriage is meant to be an emblem of Christ in his church. And therein lies the sanctity and the permanence of that covenant. One of the things to learn from the mystery now is the roles of husband and wife in marriage. And by roles, I do not mean a very detailed list of who vacuums and who uh, washes the dishes and who is home when. I don't have a detailed uh, choreographic script here. What I mean is something essential about the way God means for manhood and womanhood to come to expression in the dynamics, in the drama, in the dance of these two living their lives out together in this great thing called marriage. One of Paul's points in this passage is that the roles of husband and wife are not arbitrary. They are rooted in something irreversible, contrary to what Mary Stuart Van Leeuwen said. They are rooted in the purpose of marriage to be an emblem of Christ and the church. Men in marriage are to take their cues from Christ in his relationship to the church, and women are to take their cues from how the church is to relate to Christ. And when you set your minds on understanding how Christ loves the church and how the church loves Christ, you discern the root of role, and they are not reversible without heresy. You try to change the roles of the church and Christ, you become an idolater, or worse, God yourself. So let's look at this and see what kind of roles are implied by this destiny of marriage as a drama of Christ and his church in a loving relationship with each other. Verses 23 to 25 are the, uh, the key verses here. We'll start with the wives. Verse 24. Verse 24 speaks to the wives about her metaphor, her half of the metaphor. Verse 23 and 25 speak to husbands about their half of the metaphor. It says, wives, uh, find your distinctive role as a wife by keying off of the way the church relates to Christ. Let's read that verse. Verse 24, as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives also be subject in everything 
to their husbands. And then husbands are to get their role by keying off of the way Christ relates to the church. Verse 23, husbands, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And then verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now this tells us a lot about what headship and submission, these two words that are so controversial today, a lot is said here. So let's dig in and see what is said. Headship here, I believe, is not put forth by Paul as a right to command or control, but as a responsibility to love like Jesus. He's putting head forward as a responsibility to love like Jesus. That's what's emphasized. Whatever else might be implied, that is what's emphasized. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up to death for her. Submission is not slavish, coerced, or cowering, because that is not the way Christ wants the church to relate to him. Unfortunately, there are church forms and theologies that beget that kind of cowering, slavish, coerced relationship under legalistic pressure to Christ, from which I believe some people do model their marriages. That's not what's in this text, nor is it the biblical ideal of how the church is to relate to her Lord. The church is to be free in choosing her Lord, willing, glad, pure, strong in her allegiance to Jesus. Now, what I think is going on here in Ephesians 5 is a correction and a protection. And I can't put those two together. Let me say them in different sentences. A, a, a protection of something precious in Genesis 1, 2, 3, and a correction of the, the fall and what it did to husband and wife. Now, let me put this over against the common feminist reconstruction of the timeline of, of manhood and womanhood in the Bible. Here's, here's the typical, and I, I think if they were standing right here, or maybe they are sitting right there, I don't know. <laughs> if they were listening, they would, they would not say that's a, that's a twisting, that's an abuse of what we think. I think they would, it goes like this. God created male and female in beautiful, perfect equality. Any distinction in role is to be based on competency. It is not rooted in creation and nature, and therefore a woman should have open to her everything that she can do as woman without any reference to femininity or masculinity having a bearing on whether it's fit to do. She should be open to do what she can do. Competency is the issue in distinguishing roles in the workplace, in the church, and in the home. That's before the fall. Now, what the fall did was cause both men and women to wreck this thing. Men become domineering, controlling, abusive, using their superior physical strength to do all kinds of bad things. And women become uh, pansies, submissive, unthinking, coquettish. And what God intended falls. 
It's destroyed by the sin entering the world. Jesus, third stage, Jesus comes into the world to restore original equality and the openness of men and women to be free from those awful distortions of strength and weakness into a full-orbed, beautiful partnership of equality. That's the feminist reconstruction. And I tried to say it as positively as, as I could. It, it's attractive to millions of people today. Here's my reconstruction in the way I read that timeline, and I'll try to show you how Ephesians 5 relates to it. Before the fall, God created Adam first, gave him the moral life of the garden, gave him instruction, and then noticed it wasn't good for him, and he brought in a woman suitable for him and different from him, and that before the fall, loving leadership and initiative-taking and special responsibility for Adam was already there, and she was glad of it and affirmed him in it, and they just fit like a perfect counterpart, and it was glorious. When sin came into the world, both of them began to abuse their unique uh, roles. And they did it in two different ways each. And we're all in this. Everybody in this room is a sinner, and we're all inclined to abuse these two. Men either became abusive and domineering, or they became passive and do nothing. And they're often ambivalent partners in the same husband. The most abusive husbands are usually the husbands that lounge around in front of the TV doing nothing to take any leadership. And then when the wives don't produce the way they're supposed to, they become the abusive ones. So that there's this awful passivity and abusive dynamic that sin brought into a man's supposed loving leadership. On the other hand, women, they go into sin in two different ways. They can become very harsh and aggressive and pushy and domineering, or they can become that I don't have any brain in my head. Please take care of me kind of person. And that's an abuse. That's a destruction of what she was designed to be. Now, Jesus comes into the world with his apostles not to reestablish an original parity of role, but rather to restore the beauty of complementarity that was so loving and so free and so affirming in the old in the pre-fall condition. So you see the difference between those two structures? I, I, when I go around speaking on these things, I do not want to surrender the moral high ground of a glorious, beautiful, happy, exciting, mutually satisfying and upbuilding relationship to the feminists. I don't want to surrender that high ground because I think God set it up this way and God is smarter than anybody and loves us more than anybody does and therefore his way is going to produce the best. Now, Ephesians 5 is, I believe, structured the way it is to correct the characteristic abuses of male and female. Not all of them, but the two key ones, evidently. The characteristic abuse of men is that they don't love like Christ in their strength and leadership. And therefore, Paul says to the men... When he tells them they are the head, he, he doesn't say, and come on, get dominant. He doesn't say that. He says, come on, look to your head, Christ, and look how he loved. Look how he loved. He died. So he is calling men out of the abuse of dominance 
into a loving leadership. And he looks to the woman who might be very, in her sinfulness, resistant to, and so there's this ongoing conflict between the sexes through the ages, resistant to any kind of, of dominance from the man in a kind of self-protecting way. And he says, submit to him, not coquettishly and not mindlessly and not under coercion, but now in the freedom that you are and you have in Jesus Christ. So he's trying to rescue the typical abuses, the typical corruptions that, that occur in a husband and a wife. Now, on the basis of that, let me try a definition on you, a definition of headship and a definition of submission. Headship, I would say, therefore, is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. Now, I choose every one of the words very carefully, and if we had another half hour, I would unpack leadership, protection, and provision and show you that all three of those words are right here in this text, but, but I, we don't have time for that much. Let me read it again. Headship is the divine calling of a husband to take primary responsibility, not total, but primary. If you're wondering, can I work outside the home or something like that? Primary responsibility for Christ-like servant leadership, protection, and provision in the home. Now, here's my definition of submission. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm and nurture her husband's leadership and to carry it through with him according to her gifts. Say it again. Submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm and nurture her husband's leadership and to help carry it, help, help, help carry it through according to her gifts. And that's why no marriage will look the same. No marriage will handle the checkbook just the same. No marriage will handle the vacuuming and the dishwashing and the, and the car purchasing and the, the cutting of the grass just the same. No marriage will handle the dynamic with the kids just the same because a wife's gifts are so different and a husband's gifts are so different. So I'm not writing a script here. I'm setting up what I think are profound biblical dynamics keying off of Christ and the church that will provide guidelines for the ethos, the spirit of the way the drama, the dance, the ballet, as it were, takes place. Now let's, let's step back and try to draw out some practical implications of these things. See if I can just bring, keep bringing it down further and further to where we live. Um, the call in verse 25 for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, revolutionizes the meaning of leadership. It is true that there are secular writers who discern that there's a built-in difference between male and female and therefore probably a certain kind of choreography that ought to be heeded in relationships. But they will never, ever, ever reach the heights of this text because they don't bring Christ in as the model for the husband. It revolutionizes leadership. Luke 22:26, Jesus says to the disciples, let the leader become 
as one who serves. Now, just to prepare you, the typical evangelical feminist argument against a dynamic of marriage that has headship and submission is to call attention to this text here. Luke 22:26. The Michelsons. Dr. Michelson is now dead, but his wife, we've had discussions year, 20 years we've been going. We're friends, and they are out-and-out feminists. And, uh, and they would always come back to me with the servant, servanthood of Jesus. John, call the church to servanthood. Don't call them to hierarchy. Don't call them to headship. Call them to servanthood. Now, that's an exclusion of the middle. <laughs> so I would say, I will indeed. So I'm going to call you now to servanthood. I'm going to call you to serve men, especially you serve like Jesus served. You become a servant if you want to be a leader. But here's, here's the picture I always use. I said, when I see John, 3, uh, John 13, and Jesus binds himself with a towel, takes a bowl, gets down on his knees, and washes the feet of Judas and Peter and the twelve. Let me tell you, that's servanthood. But at that moment, in that room, nobody doubted who the leader was. Nobody. It's a false dichotomy. Yes, men, you serve your wife. Build her and love her and honor her and cherish her and die for her. But don't you ever let anybody tell you that's a contradiction of loving responsibility taking, for example, of calling the family together for devotions in the evening. Don't you wait for her to do that. She will ache under that weight. Women stream through my office over these 15 years and the number one issue is he won't lead. He won't lead and she cries and she is burdened. He doesn't get up on time for worship. He doesn't call us to devotions. He doesn't lead in prayer at the table. He doesn't take initiative to discipline the kids. He's not handling the money well. He just sits there and watches TV and he looks to me and he thinks he's honoring me as a feminist. Women want men to take initiative and be strong, loving, servant leaders. So don't let servanthood communicate abdication of responsibility for initiative-taking leadership. That's the first practical implication I see here as he calls the husbands to love like Christ. A second practical implication, submission. I'm going to dwell on this a little, a little longer here because I think this is what's so scary for women uh, in America today, especially if they come out of homes where there was abuse, and they've never seen what it means. I mean, the, the last five minutes of my talk is like a foreign language. And it's just words because they remember a dad who didn't act like that at all. No model. And therefore, the prospect of marriage is a very scary thing. And to hear a sermon like this is threatening. Because here I am, a man telling women, submit. And it feels like, yeah, but what I saw that do in my home, I saw my mother die under that spiritually. And I know some of you come from homes like that. So I want now to linger over what submission is not, and then very briefly what it is. And now I want you to go with me to 1 Peter. Oops, I didn't bring my Bible up here. It's in my briefcase. 
We got it. First Peter 3. I had Ephesians typed in my manuscript. Near the back somewhere, isn't it? Here it is. All right, we're going to read verses 1 to 7 of First Peter 3. And I'm going to develop about... Uh, the question you should be asking as we read now so that you'll be a step ahead of me in my own thinking is what is submission not? This text is about six things it's not. You'll see them as we go. Likewise, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. First Peter 3, 1. Be submissive to your own husbands so that some, though they do not obey the word, may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives when they see your reverent and chaste behavior, let not yours be the outward adorning with braiding of hair and decoration of gold and wearing fine clothing, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable jewel of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. So once the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves and were submissive to their husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are now her children if you do right and let nothing terrify you. Ah, that's great. Now, here's some things that I see in this text that submission is not. Number one, submission does not mean agreeing with everything your husband says. For example, verse one, she's a Christian in this text and he is not a Christian, which means he has a set of ideas about ultimate reality, and she rejects them. She does not share his view of reality, nor should she, no matter what he says. Okay? So the first observation is that submission does not mean capitulating to ideas that your husband has that are wrong. Number two. Submission does not mean leaving your brain or your will at the wedding altar. It is not, submission is not the inability or the unwillingness to think for yourself. Now picture the situation that Peter is dealing with here. Here is a woman who has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. She has thought about it. She has assessed the arguments given by the evangelist or whoever. She has been granted by the Holy Spirit to, as an individual, apprehend the glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel, and she has, by her will, yielded herself to the king. Her husband also heard the gospel, I believe, because it, it describes his unbelief here as disobedience. He's disobedient to the word. He heard it. He thought about it. He rejected it. So you have a, a husband and a wife hearing a gospel message and her brain independent of his brain and her heart independent of his heart comes to a massive commitment it's the most massive commitment she could make greater than any commitment to him or anybody else and she chooses it because god dealt with her by the holy spirit as an individual and he is not in on it and she's right to do that if anybody ever said to me that a wife should suspend her decision for Christ to wait for her husband, I would say that's wicked and unloving. 
I, I've never heard anybody say that, so I assume nobody does. Number three, submission is not, does not mean avoiding every effort to change your husband. This is, this is, this is tricky here. Submission does not mean avoiding every effort to change your husband. The whole point of verses 1 and 2 is to win the husband. This is a strategy not for coping with the husband's disagreement, but for changing the husband's disagreement. That's the point of the text. How can you win your husband to think what you think about Jesus? And therefore, in principle, it is not wrong for a wife to want to bring about changes in her husband's mind and heart if he's off base on something like here, believing that Jesus is the Christ and submitting to him. Submission uh, is a strategy for how to change a husband, not an abdication of the desire to change the husband. I say this is tricky because any of you who have experience in marriage know that marriage is made miserable by spouses trying to change each other. Okay? So I am, I'm stating something in an overstated way, in a sense, to make a point in principle that if you're not wise in your application of it, you will ruin your marriage. I've been married 26 years. And, uh, oh, I would like my wife to change. Good night. I, and she wants me to change. And we've been clobbering each other for years trying to figure out how to get the house cleaned up the way it's supposed to be cleaned up, you know? And to, to use words the way you're supposed to use words and to respond to the kids the way you're supposed to. That why don't you do it this way? And you can make yourself perfectly miserable doing that. I am not saying that uh, you should change everything about your spouse. In fact, the sooner you can learn to live with the foibles and the imperfections of your spouse, the happier you'll be the rest of your life. It takes a great deal of maturity. It took us about 23 years to learn that. So jump ahead of the game. Nevertheless, this text is written to help this wife win her husband, win him, out of unbelief into belief, and that is a submissive thing to do. Submissive. You know, in one sense, you could, you could make a good case that that is absolutely rebellious against submission because submission would be to submit to the way he is rather than wanting him to become like she is. And this text says she should want him to become like he is and she should find a submissive strategy for doing it. So submission does not mean not affecting change in her husband. Number four. Submission does not mean putting the will of the husband before the will of Christ. The text clearly teaches she's a follower of Jesus before she's a follower of her husband. The husband is going down the path of unbelief. She's not going to follow him. No wife in the Bible is called to follow a husband submissively into sin or unbelief. Jesus is her Lord first. The lordship of Jesus Christ over men and women relativized all other allegiances, including parent and child, citizen 
and state, employer and employee, husband and wife, elder and parishioner, the Lordship of Jesus relativizes them all. We have one king, his name is Jesus. We do what he says. And I do not believe that you ought to make a husband, a policeman, a parent, or an employer, or an elder, God. God is God. And when God calls you to act in righteousness, and any of those powers call you to act in unrighteousness, you don't bow to them. You bow to God. When it says that Sarah obeyed Abraham, verse 6, calling him Lord, that's Lord with a little L. A little, 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 little L. In fact, if you go back and try to find in Genesis where she did that, it's a very little place that says, my Lord. It's like my Lord. It's my Lord. She, it's like sir. Yes, sir, that's what, uh, that's what I did in the tent. I laughed. Number five, submission does not mean that a wife gets her personal spiritual strength from her husband. Does not mean that a wife gets her personal spiritual strength from her husband. Now, Mark, men, you ought to give spiritual strength to your wife. You ought to be the kind of leader, the kind of responsibility taker in moving the family towards worship and moving the family into the word and moving the family into prayer and moving the family into a moral vision of obedience and harmony that gives her strength. But wives, don't depend on that. Many of you are going to wind up in marriages where you do not get it and you're going to cry your eyes out for years. You will cry less and less deeply if you learn this lesson from Sarah and the other great women of old who hoped in God, the text says. The women here are summoned to develop a depth and a strength of character that does not flow from the husband, but for the husband. <laughs> I just love it. When I finished reading it, I said it's a great text because when it says, and be terrified in nothing, that doesn't mean much to us today, I suppose. But in that culture where women were so much more at risk, I mean, you're, you're at risk today, I know that, but they are, were so much more at risk in those days. And Peter was calling women to have such a firm, deep allegiance to God and such a profound hope in God without any reference to this man that she is not afraid to go to bed though he has threatened. That's a big, that's a big faith. That is a big faith. A big heart and a big hope. Number six, the last one. Finally, submission does not mean that a wife is to act out of fear. Well, I just said that. I, I combined the last two. You have become Sarah's children if you do what is right without being frightened in any fear. In other words, submission is free, not coerced by fear. Now, let me say a positive thing. Those are 
six things that it's not. Here's why I think it is. Submission is a disposition to follow the husband's authority and an inclination to yield to his leadership. I say disposition and inclination because there are situations where you don't follow his lead. She didn't in this text. But she's inclined to. She's desirous of it. She wants to. She says to him, this is the way submission talks, I delight for you to take the initiative in our home. I am glad when you take responsibility and lead. I don't flourish at home when you're passive and, and I have to make the family work all the time and you sit around and don't take any initiative. But she also says, submission also says, it grieves me when you venture into sinful acts and you want to take me with you or think that I should watch the same things as you on television or go to the same bar or it grieves me and I just before Christ whom you know I love and because of him I love you and I'm committed to you I can't let me use an illustration from my my marriage suppose I'm about to do something really dumb really stupid financially or maybe in a depressed moment after a bad year I, I tell her I'm going to quit I'm going to quit my church I'm going to get a job pumping gas or just have a writing career where I don't have to deal with people anymore. And uh, she's supposed to be submissive, right? And she sees where this comes from. This is coming from a bad day, week, year. And uh, she's, what is she supposed to do at that moment? She, nothing? I... Uh, Here's what I think she ought to say. She calls me Johnny. Johnny, I, I know you've thought a lot about this, and uh, I love it when you take the initiative to plan for us and take responsibility for things like this, but I really don't have any peace about this, and uh, I think we need to talk about it. Can we talk about it again tonight when you get home? And she might have to say that more than once, that's not, a, that's not an insubordinate thing to say, okay? That's not insubordinate. And the reason it's not insubordinate, three reasons. Number one, because I am not Christ and therefore I am fallible. Fallible. I know it, she knows it, God knows it, my church knows it. If I put forward my wills and my plans as infallible and beyond question, I am putting myself in the place of God. Well, that's one reason why it's not insubordinate for her to believe that I'm fallible. Number two, it, um, husbands ought to want their wives to be excited about their plans. Reason? Jesus wants you excited about his plans. He doesn't want you tagging along in the Christian life disliking his leadership. If you are tagging along saying, I don't like the way Jesus leads. I don't think this is a good idea. I don't think, I don't think chastity before marriage is a good idea. Well, he would be glad if you followed through on that, but he would be much, much happier as a husband if you said, right on, that is wise, that is good, you are Christ, I follow you with enthusiasm in your leadership. That's the way Christ wants his church to be. And if a husband just wants his wife to do what he says, 
and doesn't want her enthusiastic endorsement, he's not like Jesus. And therefore, the second reason why it's not insubordinate for her to express that misgiving is the husband being like Jesus ought to want her to express it and to work with her until he can bring her on to that plan. And the third reason uh, is that she expressed her misgivings in a very uh, submissive way. That is, she communicated in the misgiving, I really love your leadership. And if a wife comes forward with that, I love your leadership, then she can say a lot of misgivings about his leadership. <laughs> Without being a hypocrite at all. Now let me close here with just a, a word more about uh, headship. Headship, I call it responsibility, taking responsibility, primary responsibility for spiritual life in the family. Things like gathering the family for devotion, taking them to church, calling the prayer at meals, disciplining and educating the children, taking responsibility. Doesn't mean he does it all. In fact, when we had homeschooling for two years, I only did one little class on the Bible and my wife taught everything else. Um, stewarding the money. Husband ought to take responsibility there. Even though he may be so bad in math, he would say, honey, you better keep this checkbook because I blow it every time. That is taking responsibility. He doesn't have to do it. But he has to care that it get done right and well so that she feels she's not having to pick up a, a dropped ball. She's being handed the ball. And that's, that's okay. She likes that, I think. Or um, he's not authoritarian or autocratic or domineering or bossy and so on. I, I said I was going to say a word about mutual submission. I better close with this. This is an objection that's brought. The most common way for a feminist to deal with Ephesians 5, and I'm, it just blows my mind how they deal with it, usually by ignoring all the things that I've been saying. They say, look at verse 21. You've missed verse 21 entirely. This whole talk this morning has been a failure because it missed the whole banner that was spread over the chapter, namely, husbands and wives be mutually submissive. My response to that is, how is Christ and the church, how are Christ and the church mutually submissive? Are they? Probably. Depending on how you take the word submissive, but I'll take it in the most generous way, moving toward the feminist understanding. Yes, Christ and the church are mutually submissive. In this sense, Christ submits himself in love to die for the upbuilding of his church and the saving of his church. He's, he submits, he so he puts himself under the church, he, and they crush him. We, our sins crushed him, just crushed him to the ground, and he let it happen. That's a massive act, in one sense, of submission, that we might be saved and lifted up. How do, does the church submit to Christ? Yes, she does. She looks at him in his glory. She bows and honors and affirms that kind of loving, self-sacrificing leadership and says, I will follow you, Christ, wherever you go. That is a mutual submitting. But then I ask, is it the same form of submitting for the church and for Christ so that the same form of submitting should be commended for the wife and the husband? And the answer is clearly no. They are not the same form. In other words, mutual submission does not settle the issue of the form that the submission should take. And the form that the submission should take for husbands is to lead, lead, take responsibility like Christ in a sacrificial self-giving way. And the form that submission should take for women is to be glad when he does that. And it's that simple.
And I, I would close by simply reminding you what I began with, that the issue in marriage is God. If marriages work right, the calling is to be a drama or a metaphor or a parable putting forth Jesus and the church. The reason God invented marriage is as a testimony to the glory of his son's sacrifice for his church and the glory of the salvation, bringing a holy and pure and free and loving church into submission to them. And those two together, with no, no animosities and no put-downs, loving that complementarity and living in the strength of it forever and ever. Let's stand for prayer. Oh, Father in heaven, I pray that you would produce this beautiful complementarity of headship, loving, caring, wise, upbuilding, affirming, sacrificial headship, and this free and articulate and intelligent and affirming and upbuilding and nurturing submission into the marriages that emerge in the lives of these young people in the years to come. And so would you glorify your son Jesus and would you magnify the worth of our salvation through the drama of marriage, I ask in Jesus' name, amen.